Well, good morning, Journey family. How are we? All right. Good to see you this morning. Happy Father's Day, fathers. Uh, and welcome to you, first-time guests. If you're, it's your first time with us, it's very good to have you with us. Uh, I pray today's service is a blessing to you uh, and that we would uh, be able to encourage you in your walk with God. Uh, if, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up actually to Psalm 103. Um, just like I did on Mother's Day and Senior Sunday, I do want to take just a minute to encourage the fathers in the room. There's definitely application from today's text in Philippians for fathers, but I definitely just want to take a minute to encourage you fathers in the room from Psalm 103, just a couple verses there. Uh, and like Mother's Day, I do know that for a lot of you, Father's Day kind of puts you all over the map. Um, maybe for some of you, you're, you're ready to make a tea time with your dad. That's not tea like this, by the way. Uh, although if that's what you guys do, all more power to you. Uh, but talking about golf, maybe you're about to have a tea time with your dad. Maybe you're uh, getting ready to have a good meal. Uh, just a great time of celebration. I know though for others that it's a tough day. Uh, depending on the relationship you may have uh, with your dad or lack thereof, uh, could be strained. Maybe um, if you're like my bride, your father is no longer with us. Uh, he's with Jesus, which is far better, uh, but we miss him. And so maybe today it is a difficult day in light of that. Uh, and I know like, I just know for some of you, you've had children that have passed away. And so that makes today very difficult. Uh, and then again, even some of you here would love to be a father. And so wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, I just pray that today would be an encouragement to you uh, in all kinds of ways. Because, and I look at myself and I always need encouragement as a father um, because the reality is like as, as a man of God, I know the kind of father I want to be. And then I know the kind of father I am. And that there's a chasm between that. There's a gap between the kind of father I want to be, the kind of father I aspire to be, and the father that many days I am, a father who has to ask for forgiveness from my kids, a father who has to ask for forgiveness from my wife. And so the reality is like when I see that, sometimes it can be discouraging. And sometimes for me, Father's Day is a reminder, can, can be if I let the, the lies of the enemy who twists what is true, but then makes it an, an unhealthy thing in my heart, Father's Day can actually be a day in which I look at, at how bad of a father I am, at, at all the areas where I've fallen short. And so I just want to encourage you today from Psalm 103, starting in verse 10, that this is the type of father that we all have if we are in Christ. Here's what he says, verse 10. This is talking about God. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so today, if you're a father in the room, really anybody here, but specifically a father, and you look at yourself and you think, man, what a gap there is between the father I wanna be and the father that I am, I just wanna encourage you that your heavenly father in Jesus Christ has removed all your iniquities, has separated you from your transgressions and instead has placed a steadfast love over your life. And let that encourage you today. And as, 
a father, I know a lot of times, like for me, I just I have these desires for my kids, like what I want them to look like when they're older. Um, and a lot of times I can get lost in just the fact that I have to be this perfect example for them. But look what he says in verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And so today, fathers, I just want to encourage you that the steadfast love of the Lord is over you and that he goes on and on forever. And that the way though we are dust, the way that we encourage our kids most is to point them to the one who goes on forever, who will outlive us, who will outlive them, and that we can be encouraged that over them and when they put their faith in him over us now is a steadfast love forever and ever. So let me pray for you fathers and we'll dive into Philippians. My father, I just come before you this morning grateful that we can call you father, grateful that on this Father's Day that you have removed our iniquities from us, that you, you from as far as the east is from the west, you Remove our transgressions and you replace that with steadfast love and mercy over us. God, we love you. May, may we as fathers in this room be encouraged today that all we are doing is pointing our family to you and that you are so gracious in our shortcomings and that you're so gracious to also empower us to love our families well for the glory of your name. And so I pray that you would encourage us today in your steadfast love, your patient and faithful love over us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, Philippians 3, uh, we are in week nine of our, what will be 11 week series in the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote from prison to a church that he planted in Philippi, a Roman colony, what many people refer to as little Rome. Like you'd show up in Philippi You'd be like, this kind of feels like Rome. And that, that's where this church is. And Paul's writing this letter to them. And we're spending 11 weeks in it. This is week nine. We'll have next week. And then July 3rd, or really it's July 4th weekend, but July 3rd, we get to talk about, I can do all things through Christ. You've probably heard that verse before. And so that's where we're landing the plane, July 3rd. So this week, next week, and then the final week, July 3rd, in this letter of Paul to Philippians. And I don't know about you, like I don't know who you listen to uh, within the Christian world, like if there are certain pastors you like, if there are certain podcasts you like, if there are certain books or authors you like to read. But for me, there's a handful or so of those individuals that I, that I really kind of read religiously. Um, and, and there's been a lot of conversation I've actually heard lately, um, really over the last couple of years, about how a lot of these pastors I listen to believe that we as a culture and as a church, as the church, are really kind of on the precipice possibly of revival. Now, when I say revival, what I mean by that is probably not what you grew up with on revival, right? I'm not talking about a tent. I'm not talking about Sunday through Wednesday where you've got a service every night where you basically come in and do what we do on Sunday morning on repeat throughout the week. I mean, that's great. My dad used to go and preach revivals all the time. I remember as a kid thinking, what does it mean to preach a revival? But if you look at history of the church, God over the course of history will, will just do this amazing work where he just turns the hearts of people towards himself in a very real 
and profound way. And a lot of times it feels like it comes out of nowhere. And so you kind of look back at history and see kind of what was leading up to that. And so there's a lot of people that think that that's coming. And I pray that that's the case. But one of the things I think is interesting is that revival, that's why I think it's funny that we plan them, especially in Southern Baptist churches. We used to do this, and at least when I was growing up, we did. Um, you can't really plan a revival. You can't really plan a revival. It really kind of depends on the Lord to come in and move in a powerful way. But what we can do is we can pray for revival. We can ask God to send it to our country, to our world. But the other thing we can do, I think, is actually quite un, 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 um, exciting. It's kind of mundane, and that's just this idea of just maturing in our faith. Like one way that we can actually see revival come in our world is just to get really serious about the things of Jesus. To get really serious as his disciples about what it means to actually grow in our faith. And that is where we're headed today. Paul is going to be talking about Christian maturity. After giving us last week a baseline understanding of what Christianity is from Philippians 3, 1 through 11, he now transitions to what it looks like for us to mature in our faith. What does it mean for someone who is the people of God, which is something we talked about last week, if you have time to go back and watch it if you weren't here. What does it mean for someone to be in the people of God to actually grow in the way of Jesus? And my thing is, what if Christian maturity is actually just this mundane, day-to-day, but powerful way the Lord actually wants to bring about revival, to stir up deeper work in the culture in which we live? Because there are several ways he probably will go about bringing about revival, but there's got to be, I think, at least one way in particular that he will, and it's the day-to-day maturing and taking serious of our faith and Jesus and those he calls sons and daughters. So how does Paul in the text today set up Christian maturity? Well, I think he shows us the viewpoint of Christian maturity. Two models, he's gonna contrast two models that claim maturity. And then he's gonna show the beginning, middle and end of Christian maturity. So the viewpoint of it, two different models and how to distinguish between the two. And then the beginning, middle and end of Christian maturity. Maturity. So starting in verse 12, what, what is the viewpoint of Christian maturity according to Paul? Well, here's what he says starting in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because G- Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is building off this understanding of what he's already said, particularly, I think, in verses 9 through 11 that we talked about last week. He's acquired righteousness apart from the law. He talks about how righteousness righteousness from the law As a Jew, he thought, I was faultless, but what I have acquired is far better. It's a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness from God. And we talked about that last week. What does it mean for right to have righteousness? What does it mean to not have to acquire it, but for it to be given to you? And Paul is saying he already is righteous. In the eyes of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is seen as right, right with God. He has a righteousness 
from God. But he also says in verses 10 and 11 that he wants to participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ and experience the power of his resurrection. And I think that's kind of what's in mind here in verse 12 when he says, it's not that I'm already perfect. It's not that I have perfectly attained this. It's not that I have actually gone through the change in my life, the transformation that God has called me to go into. And this introduces an important distinction in understanding Christian theology. And that is a distinction that is often called the already, not yet. The already, not yet. And it's very important for us to get to grasp what that means. And for example, here's what I mean by that. We are already righteous, just like Paul's saying. Yet, we are being made righteous. We are already saved. Yet, we are being saved. We are already declared holy. Like you look at verse 1, he says, to the saints at Philippi, to God's holy people at Philippi. And yet, we are being made righteous. Holy, because he deals with things in their life that are out of sync with the gospel. And it's important to understand that within the understandings of Christianity, within the teachings and doctrines of Christianity, there is this understanding that there are certain things about us that are already true. And at the same time, there's things that have not yet fully culminated. And so what happens is if you don't grasp this already not yet nature of a lot of Christian doctrine, you end up falling into ditches on both sides. You end up, if you really kind of only see the already aspect, if you kind of think, man, I'm already righteous, I'm already holy, I'm already sanctified, then what happens is you end up kind of forgetting the fact that in this time of not yet, while we still live on this earth, you get lazy. You don't really pursue the Lord. You're thinking more about what's already True, you think, man, like I've been healed and then you're sick and you're not getting healed. And you're like, well, how does that work? But on the other hand, if you fall in the not yet category only, then you're constantly striving to attain something that God already says that you are. We have to understand there is a dynamic within Christian theology, within the understanding of the faith that there's something that's already true about you. And yet at the same time, there's things that we're working out in our faith and you have to hold those together. And the reason I bring that up is because the word translated in verse 12, it's translated perfect, is the same Greek word that's translated mature in verse 315. Well, what does he say in verse 315? Here's what he says. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So basically, he says in verse 12, not that I'm already perfect or mature, and then turns around in verse 15 and says, those of us that are perfect and mature. Well, how does that work? How can you be not really perfectly mature and yet perfectly mature? In essence, he's saying that mature people realize they're not yet mature. And I think as long as you've been following Jesus, if you've been following Jesus like I have since seven, you kind of realize like, wow, I've got a long way to go. And then yet at the same time, you look back and see, but I've also come a long way. And you have this understanding that one of the most mature things you'll end up experiencing in your life with Jesus is that you'll realize like all these little areas in your life that seem out of sync with the gospel. At the beginning, it seemed like there were major things. And as you get older, you kind of realize like, man, there's parts of my heart that are still really dark that I didn't even realize were there. And it's like the longer that you follow Jesus, the longer you mature, you actually realize how immature you still 
are. It's the already not yet nature of the Christian faith and it's understanding that while we are being made mature, we are also declared righteous already. So what do we do if we're already righteous? What do we do in the not yet? What do we do? Well, and, and it's important to think about because really the not yet is pretty much from the moment you put your faith in Christ until you either go to be with him in eternity when you die or he returns back. So the gap of your life is the not yet. How do we live our life in that? And Paul tells us to press on. That's what he says. I press on. How do we do that? Well, first we have to consider the already. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I've already attained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says he presses on to maturity because Christ has already made him his own. Do you see that? Do you see that? Like once again, I will always want you to understand what fuels our growing in Christ. It's not to attain something, but it's from something. You don't grow in Christ for his, for his acceptance. You grow in Christ from his acceptance. He says, Christ has already made me his own. Therefore, now I press on. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, no matter where you are, growing in your Christ likeness, no matter where you are, Jesus has already made you his own. You are secure. You track with me? You are secure. Let that resonate with you. Because a lot of times we look at where we're at in our Christ likeness and we're discouraged. You're secure because Jesus has made you his own already. Rest in that. But not only that, we press on because, not just because we are already uh, been made by or known by Christ, we press on in the not yet by forgetting what lies behind. So he says, I forget what lies behind. We forget both the positive things and the negative things. Now, most likely part of what Paul has in mind here is the pedigree we talked about last week where he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. When it comes to zealousness, I persecuted the church. He was kind of given his fleshly resume and then says, I put no confidence in that. So he's probably saying like, that's part of what he's forgetting behind, but we also need to understand like that as we do good works, God, be, that God created for us to walk in and we mature as we do good works, that those are also things we need to kind of forget in a way. We don't want to hang our hats on some past accomplishment or victory. We need to press on for more good works. We forget that. We leave it behind. But not only that, we also need to let, leave behind where we have failed. Like we need to learn from our mistakes. That's called wisdom. But we don't languish in our sin and our failures. We run to Jesus. And we press on towards the goal and the prize of which we've been called. And that is Jesus Christ himself. Listen to how Peter O'Brien speaks of Paul forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. Here's what Peter O'Brien says. He says, Paul will not allow either the achievements of the past, which he knew that God had wrought, or for that matter, his failures as a Christian to prevent his gaze from being fixed firmly on the finish line. In this sense, 
he forgets as he runs. He forgets as he runs. I think that's why when you see verse 16, it's what he says. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. How do you press on? How do you forget what lies behind? How do you hold fast to the fact that the Lord has already taken you into his grasp? You hold fast to what you have attained. You hold true to the gospel, to the fact that God saved you by grace through faith alone. So where are you in your viewpoint of Christian maturity? Do you think you've already arrived? Are you strutting your stuff? Do you, do you use past victories or successes? I led that guy to the Lord, you know, 20 years ago. That's really the only fruit that I can see in my life. Do you hold to those past victories and just opt out of pressing on now? Or maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe you feel like you're never gonna get there. That's more like how I feel. And you need to be reminded of chapter one, verse six, where Paul says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. You're not done, he's not done with you, but maybe for you, that's where you're at. And what I would imagine is like, most likely we are probably in this room, we're probably all over the map on this. It probably a lot of times depends on the situation, probably depends on the environment that you're in. For example, like in relationships, maybe for some of you, uh, you are really growing and showing maturity. You're, you're, love, you're showing steadfast love and mercy to your kids. But to your spouse, you are quick to critique. You're quick to judge. So maybe even within relationships, there's certain relationships where you're really growing in maturity. Then there's other relationships where you're really lagging behind. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's sin. Like maybe there's certain sins that you'd be like, man, I don't struggle with pornography and yet at the same time you're struggling with pride and a lack of humility. Maybe you brag about your humility. Maybe for others it's, it's like I, I don't struggle with uh, covetousness, but I struggle with speaking the truth. The reality is like for a lot of us, it's not that we just are always on this upper trajectory in every aspect of life. There's probably some areas where we are growing in maturity and other areas where we feel a little stunted. Maybe it's environments, maybe at home you're, you're crushing it, but at work you're a different person. What is your viewpoint of Christian maturity? And remember that what Paul told us last week in three verse three, we serve God by his spirit. The way we press on as followers of Christ is to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do the works of God. And as we grow, we resemble more and more the Son of God. We press on in the not yet by the power of the Spirit whom we have already received. This is the viewpoint of Christian maturity. But growing in maturity is difficult. <laughs> I mean, we all can attest to that. Growing in maturity is difficult, and even with all we have received already, life in the not yet is filled with trouble, it's filled with pain, it's filled with persecution, it's filled with suffering. And on top of all that, we still live in the flesh and struggle with our own sin 
and desires. And so I think knowing this, Paul calls the church to imitate him. Look what he says in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. When things are tough, it's helpful to follow an example. For me, not much is more tough in life than having to do something with my hands besides move them while I preach, type, or talk on the phone. Our six-year-old got a climbing dome for his birthday, like the one at Porch 30. And don't you know, FedEx didn't take that mug off the truck fully prepared. And so what did I do two Sundays ago? I went home and to put that together. So just a quick poll, when it comes to assembly, how many of you in here are follow the instructions type of people? Okay, you pull the instructions out, you make sure all the parts are there. Um, I do that. Sometimes I freak out because I'm like, where's this one bolt? Like I can't go to Lowe's and get a replacement. I gotta send it all back. How many of you think, if I can just see a picture of the finished product, I'll be fine, I'll figure it out. Wow, less than I thought. Mostly males, interesting. And then how many of you are both? Like, I need the, yeah, yeah, amen. I need the instructions and I need a picture of what it looks like. When I put this thing together, I watched a YouTube video. I had the instructions out. I found out there was an app that I could actually download that I could zoom in to each particular step. I did that, still got it wrong. And it took about three and a half hours, but now he's able to climb on it. All is good. And the reality is like, whatever category you find yourself in assembling a product, God help you if it's from Ikea. When it comes to Christianity, we really are all the third type. We're all the third type. Because Christian maturity is not something you can just come to by looking at another Christian. You can't just see some end result and go, I'll figure it out from here. Nor is Christian maturity strictly just looking at a how-to manual. No, we need the spirit, we need instruction from God's word, and we need models of Christian maturity that have shown maturity in their lives to help us. And it's interesting that Paul commends not only himself, but he commends others also. In chapter two, he commends to them Timothy and Epaphroditus. If you look at now, he's commending himself, but he also commends just others. Look what he says in 17. He says, those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's basically saying like other people that you know who walk in ways like us, imitate them. He's not just saying himself. You don't have to be an apostle to be emulated or imitated because the gospel is not about some sort of like upper echelon perfection, that it's about growth. As we discussed two weeks ago when we talked about relational discipleship in that passage on Epaphroditus and Timothy, we need people in the church who are pressing on after Jesus that are willing to disciple others, to allow others to see how they press on in the not yet of the Christian life. We need that in the church. Are you that type of person? Like if someone at Journey wanted to know what it was like to follow Jesus, could we say, hey, go observe them for a few weeks. See how they pray. See how they spend their money. See how they talk to their spouse and their kids. See how they talk to their friends. See how they work. Notice how they repent to the, to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. 
Are you that type of person? Because Paul is saying that we need examples. He's calling for good examples, good models of Christian maturity to emulate, but he then contrasts models of Christian maturity to models that maybe claim maturity but are counterfeit. They claim maturity but they're counterfeit. Look what he says starting in verse 18. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So why do I say this is a claim to maturity? Because in our world, this is called progress. Living this way in our world, 2022, this is called progress. And in Paul's day, these enemies of the cross of Christ were widely found. First of all, there were enemies that were religious, which we talked a little bit about last week. There were Judaizers who came into churches claiming that they needed to add the Jewish ethnic markers of circumcision and dietary customs to properly be God's people. And they were subverting the power of the gospel and the claims of the cross of Christ by shrinking them down to say, you all need to look like us. We all need to add to the cross. And Paul says that makes them enemies of the cross because they're subverting the gospel because nothing done in the flesh would cut it. No pun intended. No attempted righteousness of our own. From any kind of religious approach, would cross the chasm between creation and creator. There's no way we could cross that. God had to cross that chasm himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But in Paul's day, there were also secular or what he would probably call pagan enemies of the cross of Christ. Rome was oppressive to the church in this day. The church made the claim that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. The church strived to be good citizens of Rome, but to realize that their ultimate allegiance was not to Rome or to Caesar, but was to King Jesus and his kingdom. And that creates problems. Threats were made to stop preaching Jesus, to stop living certain ways. Christians were thrown in prison. They were flogged. They were beaten. Eventually, many of them were martyred for their faith. And all of this, both religious and pagan were active enemies of the cross and it's not much different today today it's under the guise of progress of maturity as a society that's what we call it today and it's either the progress towards attaining salvation by works through false religion or it's human progress away from religion and divine moral moral absolutes towards humanity being the center the determiner of right and wrong, humanity determines, humans determine the meaning of life. And both false religion and secularism in our world today, what's at the center of that? It's us, it's people, it's humanity. It's based upon either your works, your mindset, your views of progress, your views of morality, your views of reality. We are the center in today's World, And this is what I believe Paul means by their God is their belly. I don't think he's talking simply about gluttony. He's talking about what we desire, 
What we desire drives everything we do. They glory in their shame with their mind on earthly things. Enemies of the cross of Christ live by their carnal desires and any shame they may feel, they reject and they glory in it instead. They don't, they, they feel a little bit of shame or conviction and instead of rejecting it, they say, this is wonderful. They glory in it. It's what Paul says. It's the air we breathe. If it feels good, it must be right. If it feels bad or difficult, it must be evil or wicked. This is the view many in our Western world have, but the reality is it doesn't lead to progress. It doesn't lead to maturity. And you don't need Paul to tell you that. Just look at our world. Look at our society. Look at the growing sense of inadequacy people feel and the massive depression that is wreaking havoc. Notice the constant pressure for our view to be validated by someone else. The increasing levels of anxiety show that the end of this way of living is not progress or maturity. It's not salvation if you're in a false religion. The end of this is destruction. Yes, Paul says that, but we can look at our world and see that. You see, there's two ways of life that Paul's talking about. Two models, two ways of maturity and of progress. One is human-centered with our desires to be our own God and to gain our own glory, and this way leads to destruction, and the other submits to Jesus as our only Lord and hope and presses on towards Jesus' call on our life through grace by faith. So which model are you following? Are you following the model of Christian maturity? are models of counterfeit maturity, counterfeit progress. Because whichever model you follow, it will determine the end result. If you begin with yourself as authority in your own life and your desires as ultimate, Paul says this all ends in destruction and he weeps over it. He says, I write to you in tears. He weeps over it and we should too. Because there's a better way. There's a better hope there's a better end than destruction. This is the better way, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This better way begins with a new citizenship. It's the way it begins. Through faith in Jesus, we receive the righteousness that comes from God, making us right with him. That's already. And we now are citizens of heaven already. First, foremost, primarily, that is our citizenship in heaven. And as citizens of heaven already, we wait on earth in the not yet for our Savior to come. And salvation is the end for those who are in Christ Jesus, not destruction. Salvation is the end for those who are in Christ Jesus. We await a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And salvation, what does it look like? It looks like transformation. It begins now by the power of the Spirit, changing our minds, changing our attitudes as we press on, but it culminates in the transformation of our flesh, our bodies, even these bodies that causes so many problems these days, this flesh will be transformed into a glorious body. 
And notice this transformation. It begins in three, verse three. It begins by serving God by the Holy Spirit. It's sustained in three, verse 12, by Jesus making us his own and continually sustained in 320 by having a citizenship already by grace and it is completed in 321 by the power of Jesus Christ that enables him to be Lord over all things. This is the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian maturity. And this type of maturity in the not yet only happens when our mind is set on the Savior of whom we await. When our mind is set on him, we hold true to the gospel. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity. He says, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages and the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And this is a famous quote you've probably heard. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Having our mindset shaped by our heavenly citizenship and gazing upon uh, the Savior whom we await from there we become agents of transformation here in the not yet on earth. And my hope and my prayer is that we would be a church made up of people like this, that I would be someone like this, transformed by Jesus through the gospel of grace, pressing on in maturity in him, serving him by the Holy Spirit and sharing this news so that others who right now, their current end would be destruction, would be transformed by the same gospel that has transformed us and is transforming us. And this is Paul's desire as well, because this is what he says to close it out in verse one of chapter four. Therefore, so everything he's just said, here's how he finishes it. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Let's stand firm in the Lord in the not yet as we await a savior, Jesus Christ, to return to make the already a forever reality. So as we close and think about a call to action this morning, if you're in the room and you would say that you don't follow Jesus, uh, like you're not, you may be interested, I mean you're here, so you may be a little interested, but you would definitely say like, I don't, I don't consider myself a follower of Jesus. I would just ask that you would take as critical a view of your own way of life as you do Christianity. 
Like, just look at it. Look, are you feeling the things that you have been promised that you would feel when you pursue your desires? Do you feel the joy, the satisfaction? Because I know, just even as a Christian, as someone who follows Jesus, when I follow my desires that are not of the way of Jesus, they don't lead me to satisfaction. Not for long. So think about it. Think about your life. Think about what you're pursuing, what you're pressing on to. Does it, do you see destruction in your life? I would ask you to turn to Jesus, not because he's gonna make your life perfect. As we just said, like we spent a whole sermon talking about how we have to press on to maturity. But the reality is like when you press on to maturity and when you fall as a Christian, when you stumble, when you realize you're at the end of the rope, when you realize that you, this idea that you had is a dead end, our end is not destruction. We turn to the Savior who has, as we said earlier from Psalm 103, separated us from our iniquities by grace. Not because we're better than you if you're not a Christian, because we've just put our faith in Jesus. Would you trust him today if you are not a follower of him? If you are a follower of Jesus, are you pressing on? Like, are you actually pressing on in your faith? Are you living a life in a way that you could actually look at someone else who's like, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. And you say, imitate me. I don't have it all figured out. It's not that I've already obtained this, but I press on towards Jesus. The way of maturity is to realize we've got to keep pressing on. It's the way of maturity is to think I've got to keep maturing. I've got to keep growing because Jesus is the only perfect one and he gives us his perfect righteousness by faith. And finally, Christian, take heart in the hope we have that the culmination of our lives is not destruction but salvation. That we await a savior Jesus Christ, and that if you are in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, listen to me, this is true. If you're in Jesus Christ, this life and the not yet, for us, this is as bad as it'll ever be. This is as bad as it'll ever be. Praise his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, just, we can be overwhelmed just to think about the calling that you've put in our life to live as lights, to live life worthy of the gospel, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to strive and strain forward to the goal. And so I'm grateful, God, that you, don't, you say, don't be overwhelmed. Do not be afraid. Just follow me. That you give us the spirit to empower us to follow you. God, would you just encourage us? Spirit, would you sift through our hearts this morning? Would you show us areas in our life where we are out of step, where we are maybe stunted in our growth.
And instead of us feeling shame or, or guilt, God, would you just allow us to run to you with that conviction, the one who separates us from our transgressions from the east to the west. Would we come to you, not hide from you, but come to you for that mercy and steadfast love to grow in those areas where we aren't? And would you encourage us to see the areas in our life where we are growing, where you are completing your work in us, God? Would you help us to see that? The enemy will give us lies. Even right now, I just know he's the father of lies. He's speaking lies into the hearts and minds of people in this room who know you about their inadequacies. God, would I pray that you would just take that inadequacy, help them to see it and to run to you, to flee from the enemy who would want to shame them and guilt them to cover it up, but rather to run to you for mercy and grace and for healing. And so we pray this, and we just pray that we would be a people that day to day are maturing in our faith and that you would begin to bring revival to our world, not from some crazy, outstanding thing, but just this day-to-day maturity. Your people taking you seriously and loving each other. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.